HEC Breakthroughs. A knowledge at HEC Podcast. Hi, everyone, and welcome to HEC Breakthroughs, your monthly podcast by the Knowledge at HEC team. Breakthroughs brings you the best of HEC Paris's academic research from professors and PhD students. We show how this research relates to and impacts on the challenges our world is facing. I'm Daniel Brown, the school's chief editor. This month, we talk to Olivier Siboni. Olivier is professor of strategy at HEC Paris, and he's just co-authored a phenomenal book called Noise, A Flaw in Human Judgment. This six-year labor of love was co-written with Cass Sunstein and Daniel Kahneman. By the way, Nobel laureate Daniel Kahneman will be visiting HEC on October the 7th to accept the title of Honoris Causa Professor. That's for his exceptional work in the fields of psychology and economics. Noise is a monumental work on human error. The 460-page book has shot up to the top of the bestsellers lists on both sides of the Atlantic. Its three authors explore what they call the unwanted variability in judgments. They are especially unwanted in fields like criminal justice, medicine, hiring, economic forecasts, and other fields where we are looking for consistency. Wherever there is judgment, there's noise. There's more of it than you think. Cass Sunstein, Harvard Law Professor. And the consequences of that volume of noise uh, is very severe, very bad, and there are identifiable steps that can reduce it. About seven years ago, I think, I was doing consulting with an insurance company. Daniel Kahneman. And that's where the first, the idea of the importance of noise in a practical setting uh, came up. It turned out that underwriters, uh, when you give them the same risk to assess, give very different answers. I mean, dramatically more variable than the executives of the company expected. And that was really the genesis of uh, the ideas that we've been following in this book. Well, I'm joined on HEC Breakthroughs by Olivier Siboni, who's currently in Paris. So, Olivier, you've just published a 450-page book on human error, or at least one of its main components, and that is noise. The other being uh, bias, mainly cognitive bias. Now, there have been countless books on bias, far fewer on noise, despite it having sometimes huge impact on our judgments in fields as diverse as medicine, law, strategy, and, and child protection. I suppose we should start with uh, your definition of noise. Uh, you say it's, quote, an unwanted variability of judgments. Absolutely. So it's, it's actually quite simple. We are all familiar with bias, and bias is an average error. If you look at people who are making a forecast, for instance, you know, let's, let's take a very simple forecast. Let's say um, we are all planning for next year's GDP growth rate, and there are 10 of us, and we're making that forecast. And our average forecast is that it's going to be you know, 3%, and it turns out to be 2%. On average, we've made an error of plus 1%, and that's a bias. We can ask, why are we over-optimistic in forecasting GDP? What has driven us to have that average view that is distorted compared to what reality is going to be and so on. So that's the average error is the bias. 
The other source of error for any one of these individuals is that not everyone makes exactly the same forecast of plus 3% or plus 2% or whatever. People have differences between them in the judgments that they make, and that variability of their judgments or variability of their errors, the unshared component of the error is what we call noise. And for anything where we expect consistency, where we expect there is the correct answer, which is basically just about everything we call a matter of professional judgment. Noise is as important a source of error as bias in the sense that if you rely on one individual judgment, the variability of those judgments is going to be a problem. Now, in a way, it's, it's ironic since uh, even the word noise itself comes from this old French of din, disturbance, uproar, brawls, I've read. Yet you say it's so silent, rarely recognized that bias is, quote, the star of the show while the noise is just a bit player, usually off stage. How do you explain that, myopia? There is a number of explanations. The, the first one is that well, it doesn't matter because these errors cancel out. And that's the, the response that we have because we've been trained to, to think in averages and to think in main effects. That's even what scientists do when they do a study and they say, oh, we found an effect here. We found that on average, people respond to this drug or don't respond to this drug. Or there is a psychological phenomenon where we can measure an effect or we cannot measure an effect. That's an average. But around that average, there is a wide dispersion of possible outcomes, and we often neglect to think about that dispersion as a phenomenon that is in itself interesting. That's one reason. There is a more fundamental psychological reason. When you look at the average error, you immediately look for a cause. You immediately look for a reason. So why are the forecasters over-optimistic? Well, are they employed by the government and they have an interest in being over-optimistic? Or is there a reason why we can imagine they have been influenced by some force or by, by some source of error that makes them all err in the same direction. Bias is inherently causal. When we see a bias, we look for, and usually we find an explanation for the shared error. Noise, on the other hand, is fundamentally statistical. It's an observation of a variability that doesn't have an obvious cause that probably does not even have a cause that you can put your finger on. And that's something that the human mind is not naturally equipped to deal with. We're very good at looking at single cases and looking for the explanations or the causes of what we observe in those single cases. We're not as good as thinking in terms of sets, of ensembles, and asking ourselves, what are the drivers of the variability in that ensemble? And what can we and can we not understand in what causes that variability? HEC Breakthroughs. This book uh, aims at uh, redressing this imbalance in order to improve the quality of our judgments. Uh, it brings together insights and, and talents of, of three remarkable authors. Uh, there's yourself, a specialist in biases and heuristics, these mental shortcuts we make in, in strategy. Uh, there's uh, Daniel Kahneman, um, Nobel laureate uh, 2002. He hardly needs introduction for his huge work uh, on psychology of judgment and decision-making. And uh, there's Cass Sunstein, who's a, a legal scholar, very recognized and well-known for his work. How did you uh, work together? Well, I'm obviously <laughs> very lucky and, and very privileged to be working with two such 
uh, wonderful co-authors. And the, the story of the book is that basically uh, Danny and I started working on the topic. Um, we weren't sure at the beginning that it was going to be uh, worth the book. And part of this is what we were talking about a moment ago. We, we tend to underestimate the importance of noise because we focus so much on bias. And Danny, of all people, has been you know, focusing a lot on bias his entire life. His previous book, Thinking Fast and Slow, is entirely about how individuals think and what explains the biases of those individuals. And it gradually became clear to us that noise is a different phenomenon in that it's a problem of systems. It's a problem of organizations. It's a problem of groups of people in which we expect consistency, in which we expect that people are reasonably interchangeable, and where in fact they are not, because they are much more different from one another than we think they are. And therefore, there is more noise in the system than we think they are. And as we were coming to that realization, it became clear to us that this was a topic that had huge societal and, and legal and philosophical ramification, in addition to having you know, psychological roots that Danny is, of course, highly qualified to discuss and some organizational implications, which I had been thinking about for a while. And that's why we thought it would be a good uh, addition to the team to have a great legal scholar and a great expert on government joining us. And we were very lucky to quickly convince Cass that uh, it would be a good team to join. <laughs> this completes a trilogy, started with uh, Daniel Kahneman's Thinking Fast and Slow, followed by, by Nudge, uh, which uh, also involved uh, Cass Sunstein. Can you see a sequential uh, logic between these three? I don't think there is a sequential logic. I think thinking fast and slow focused very much on what drives individual decision-making and individual errors and what happens in the mind of the average human being, if you want. You know, what, what happens in your mind as a sort of model, unique human being. And that's what made the book so appealing. Each reader can see how the book is about him or her because it talks about human nature, essentially. Nudge is a book about government, about how government can take a different approach to shape the choices of individuals, to change the decision architecture when people are making individual choices, to address some of the biases that thinking fast and slow was explaining or was analyzing. And noise does something slightly different, which is to say, it actually turns out that people are not all alike. It actually turns out that when in an organization we pretend that people are making decisions in the same way and that all the errors that they are making are motivated by bias in the same, that are caused by biases in the sense that there are going to be shared error, we're missing a big aspect of the problem, which is that in fact, there is a lot of variability there. And that's a problem that organizations or systems in the broadest sense, it could be the judicial system, which is not strictly speaking an organization, should tackle because it's a big cause of error and injustice. Order in the court. A rare moment at the U.S. Supreme Court today as justices consider a case involving racial bias in jury selection. A Mississippi death row inmate who was tried six times for murder wants his conviction overturned. He's arguing that the prosecutor in each trial engaged in racial discrimination when striking jurors. Several justices have expressed concern over this. Concern you divide this noise into six parts, uh, Olivier. You start with examples of judgment errors, um, one in the public sector, uh, criminal sentencing, and another in the private sector, in the insurance branch. 
And you say that sometimes there are shockingly high levels of noise in, in both. And um, all three of you measure this with what you call a, a noise audition, uh, which you say is not so complicated to do. Can you elaborate? We call it a noise audit, actually. And it's worth you know, sharing a few examples of what we mean by noise. Because when we talk about human judgments, when we talk about things like judges in a courtroom deciding you know, to how many years in prison to sentence someone who has been found guilty, or when we talk about underwriters in an insurance company who say, yeah, to ensure this risk, we should charge you know, $120,000, you know, we, we, of course, realize that different people making those judgments are not going to be in perfect agreement. That's, in fact, what we mean when we say this is a matter of judgment. We imply, by the very use of the word judgment, that some reasonable amount of disagreement is expected, tolerated, and, in fact, intrinsic to the idea of judgment. What we don't realize until we do one of those measurements that we call a noise audit is that this variability is in fact often much larger, much greater than what we think is tolerable and that when we, than what we expect. Take the example of the insurance company to take a business example that many of your listeners might relate to. You ask different underwriters in an insurance company to evaluate the same risk. And then you measure what the average difference is between two randomly chosen underwriters having looked at the same risk. If you ask them, and if you ask their bosses, the heads of the insurance company, how much difference do you expect to find there? What, what would be the average difference between two experts looking at the same risk? You know, the, the most popular answer by a wide margin is 10%. They say, yeah, you know, a difference of 10% between two people making what is fundamentally a professional judgment, that would be okay. We could live with that. But when you actually do the noise audit and you measure how much of a difference there is, it turns out it's closer to 55%, which is five times more. And basically the idea that noise is several times greater than people expect and then people think would be tolerable in their organizations is something that we find time and again. In the ju judicial system, there is a striking example of a noise audit that was done in great detail many decades ago, in fact, in, in the US. It turns out that where the average sentence is seven years in prison for a particular crime that has been described in a very schematic way, so there are no no, no reasons for different judges to find different details of the case that appeal to them. Even when the judgment is described in a very schematic and simplistic way in this, in this study, which should reduce the amount of variability compared to what you find in the real world, you find that an average punishment of seven years comes with a, a mean difference between judges of about three and a half years. So this is a difference that is entirely caused by the judge. And I don't think that when lawmakers say we should have we should give judges some freedom of appreciation they intended that freedom of appreciation to have everything to do with the judge and nothing to do with the case that's you know a problem of the system that people are typically not aware of because they don't realize how big the problem is so noise audits those kinds of studies in which you measure that there in fact is variability that there is more of it than what people think uh, are, are the way to find that out. And the, the conclusion we've come to, and one of the, the, the mottos for the book is, 
wherever there is judgment, there is noise, and probably more of it than you think. From the bed to the door, the hall is 43. What's the matter with you guys? You all know he's guilty. He's got to burn. You're letting him slip through our fingers. Slip Perhaps through our like fingers? Are you his executioner? Well, kid, I'm one of them. I would. I feel sorry for you. What it must feel like to want to pull the switch. Ever since you walked into this room, you've been acting like a self-appointed public avenger. Olivier Siboni, there's also a deeply psychological element uh, which uh, explains why we can't see noise. Uh, you devote an entire section to it. Could you explain or elaborate on the psychological element in noise? So there are several uh, psychological aspects to noise that are worth, dis uh, worth discussing. Um, one, one question is why we don't see it, why we tend to underestimate it. But before we get there, I think it's important to understand where noise comes from psychologically. And what's interesting here is that there are three sources of noise. The first one, if you take, let's take a simple example. Um, let's take, uh, since we are on an academic podcast, let's take professors grading essays. So you've got 10 professors and they're grading the same 50 essays. And we look at the grades that they've given. And of course, they don't agree. What could be the differences? Well, the first explanation that comes to mind is some professors are tough graders and other professors are easy graders. And every student will tell you that. Every professor will tell you that too. That's what we call level noise. The average level of the judgments of the professors is not the same. So since in the same organization, you could be assigned to Professor A or to Professor B, and that's essentially a lottery, that's a problem from the perspective of the organization in the sense that what professor happens to grade you does not change the value of your essay or of your work and should not affect the grading, but it does. That's the first source of noise. It's called level noise. It's, by the way, relatively easy to control in that setting. You can imagine how. The second aspect, which also comes to mind, is that when I'm grading an essay, I, I'm not exactly the same person that I was when I was grading another essay yesterday. Maybe this morning I'm in a good mood and I'm well-rested and last night I was in a bad mood and I was tired and that made me a little more impatient in trying to understand the subtleties of an argument or a little harsher in assessing the, the, the quality of the writing. Whereas this morning I'm going to be a little more generous. Each of us is influenced in subtle but important ways by extraneous factors that should not influence us in our professional judgments, but do. We know that from our own experience. We all know that our mood, our uh, fatigue, our circumstances have a bearing on our judgments and our decisions. That's what we call occasion noise. And at that point, usually people say, yeah, now I get it. I understand. There's variability between people and there's variability within people. That's it. But actually, that's not it. And here's the big thing. If you take two professors and you ask them to rank the same 50 essays from the best to the worst, they are not going to agree on the ranking. It's not just that some of them are harsher graders and others are more generous graders, it's that what they value is different. What they think is important is different. It's different from the pattern of judgment that you're going to have because you have different tastes. In a word, we as judges making judgments, we are different. And any system that does not recognize that we are infinitely different 
in the way we make judgments. And that lets us make those judgments on behalf of the organizations as if we were interchangeable is missing this fundamental aspect of judgment, which we call pattern noise. That's the third component. And is therefore opening itself to a lot of unwanted variability. You want to see this boy die because you personally want it, not because of the facts. You're a sadist. You don't really mean you'll kill me, do you? This is a really dense book, and it's not only about identifying uh, the noise phenomenon. It, you also suggest practical ways to reduce it. And reduce doesn't mean eliminate. We'll come back to that at the end, I think. And you do that through five case studies, um, in, one in medicine, then in uh, performance rankings, forensic science, forecasting, and hiring decisions. I wanted to just focus on this last one. How do you use uh, this technique that you call decision hygiene on hiring decisions? We wanted, in fact, as you point out, Daniel, we wanted to give the reader very practical tools to try to deal with noise in organizations. We don't want this to be just a call to action. It is a call to action. It is a call to recognize the magnitude of the problem and to start taking noise seriously, to try to take noise as a source of error and injustice that is potentially as important as bias. So we wanted it to be that, but we also wanted it to be a set of tools for people to do something about it. And the approach we advocate, the approach we propose, is what we call decision hygiene. And that's a bit off-putting, you know, that's a, you know, a bit bizarre as a name. And we wanted it to be that way to send a very clear message that this isn't like bias, something where you're going to identify a bias, you're going to fight the bias, and you're going to win. This is a battle that you need to fight every day, just like the battle for hygiene. Think of people washing their hands in hospitals. That's a battle that needs to be fought every day. But that actually makes a big difference. And noise is just like that. Noise is a problem that is everywhere, that cannot be seen, and that can, that can only be fought by preventative measures, by measures that combat the sources of noise before they influence our decisions. That's why we wanted to call it decision hygiene. So what does it consist of specifically? Take the example of hiring. We know from decades, in fact, from a century of research, that the way people generally make hiring decisions does not work. The way people generally make hiring decisions is they do an interview and they meet someone and they form a holistic impression of whether that person is going to be good or not good for the job for which they are hiring. They are essentially making a prediction that the person is going to be good in the job based on holistic aggregate judgment of what they can see in the interview. We know from a century of research that the quality of that prediction is very poor. We also know from the same research that that can be improved by doing a number of things, by doing many things, but one of the things that you can do that works very nicely is to structure that decision. It's to conduct, for instance, structured interviews where you evaluate each of the dimensions that you're interested in in the candidate separately from each other. That's a structured interview. That's more broadly a structured evaluation process. And we know from the research on hiring that structured decision-making in hiring is a lot better than holistic, unstructured decision-making in hiring. We 
extrapolate from this, we extend this reasoning to any field where you are making decisions about a number of options and where you need to take into account different dimensions of those options that you want to evaluate. Basically, we say options are like candidates. Options in a strategic decision are like candidates in a hiring decision. You need to evaluate them on a number of dimensions that you need to define ex ante. You need to decide in advance on what dimensions you're going to evaluate those options. So you need to structure your judgment. You need to make sure that you make those assessments on each of the judgments as separately as you can, as independently of each other as you can. And you need to delay the moment when you're going to use your intuition to make that final decision until you have reviewed the information and the assessments on each of the independent decisions. And at that point, you can actually have a holistic discussion. We give fairly detailed examples of how companies can use this sort of process in their top management decision-making. And we hope that as those practices gain traction, this will become more and more obvious. Those practices will become as standard as many of the ways of running meetings that we consider normal today. Olivier, unfortunately, we're coming to an end of this exchange. I just wanted to wrap up about the noise that this book seems to be making already, one of the multiple definitions of this word. We're talking only a few days after the publication, and already there seems to be a huge amount of interest. The New York Times put it in the 15 must-read books for May. In these troubled COVID-19 times, could it answer a few of the urgent questions and problems that uh, business is facing? Well, we, the, the times are as troubled as they have ever been. We're not claiming that we're going to bring answers to any specific question. We are drawing attention to the fact that when people bring answers to important questions, they are missing an important source of variability in their decisions. COVID-19, by the way, brings this in, in a harsh light. Um, I was struck by the reaction of different countries to what was essentially the same set of facts when there started to be reports of side effects of one of the vaccines against COVID-19. Those reports are what they are. They are facts. The objectives that the, the various countries pursue in their decisions to allow or not to allow or to restrict or not to restrict the use of those vaccines should be more or less identical. They're all public health agencies that pursue public health objectives. And yet it looks like just about every country in Europe made a different decision. Some said, let's ban this vaccine altogether. Others said, let's not do anything and keep allowing it across the board. Yet others said, let's restrict it to some particular groups or subgroups of the population, but it was a different subgroup in every country. That is a prime example of noise. This is a decision that should be identical in the sense that all the people who are making that decision genuinely are trying to make the right call and genuinely believe that there is a correct answer that they are coming closest to. We, of course, don't know what the best answer is, or at least we don't know when at the time they're making that decision, but we expect that there is one, and yet we see a lot of variability in their answers. I think if we saw more of the decision hygiene techniques, more of the noise reduction techniques that we're talking about in noise in use in those sorts of decision-making um, settings, we would see less variability and we would hopefully see better decisions. 
My thanks to you, uh, Olivier Stiboni, for uh, this, this fantastic exchange. Um, thank you. Thank you very much, Daniel. HEC Breakthroughs, a knowledge at HEC podcast. Olivier Siboni, HEC Professor in Strategy and Business Policy. He was speaking shortly after the publication of Noise, a Flaw in Human Judgment. The book has been translated into four languages so far, and its publication in French is set for September 29th. That's next week. Well, that's almost it for HEC Breakthroughs number four. Don't forget to tune in to the October podcast. Next month, we'll talk to not one, but two HEC academics, Anne-Laure Cellier and Claire Linares. They are, respectively, Associate Professor in Marketing and a recently graduated doctoral student. Anne-Laure and Claire will discuss their just-published research on the impact smartphones might have or not have on our business interactions and creativity. If the mere presence of a phone has an effect on social interaction, then it's formidable. If you think of the presence of smartphones today in negotiation rooms, uh, imagine uh, at the UN, <laughs> right? You have people talking about going to war or not. <laughs> and, uh, if the phone has an influence, we want to capture it. Uh, so we, we thought it was maybe one of the most formidable questions to investigate. So it was supposed to be only our starting point to investigate uh, the effect of uh, the mere presence of a, of a phone on creativity. But then we uh, conducted a first study and we were unable to find uh, the initial effect. So that was the starting point of this project. Claire Linares and before that Anne-Laure Cellier. If you want a taster of their research, why not look up the op-ed they recently published in Forbes magazine in the HEC Insights column. That wraps up this Breakthroughs. Please download all our podcasts from the HEC Knowledge webpage or from the usual websites you're subscribed to. There's plenty of other programs to enjoy. Goodbye.